0: Radio 3, it's a minute after 5 o'clock, time for Discovering Music with Stephen Johnson, who joins members of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, the conductor Kenneth Woods, and the pianist Piers Lane for a look at Chopin's first piano concerto.
1: <laughs> Frederick Chopin was just 20 when he wrote his piano concerto number one in E minor. He finished it in the same year that he finished number two. And for some reason or other, which seems to be peculiar to musical history, the numbers have ended up in the wrong order, as with Beethoven's first two concertos, because the first concerto was actually the second to be written, and the second was actually the first. But we will refer to it as number one for the benefit of this programme, or it'll all just get too confusing. Chopin finished it in 1830 and it's stayed in the repertoire more or less ever since, which is quite an amazing achievement, because as we'll also be seeing over the years, quite a few critics and composers have taken various swipes at it, alleging that it has various faults. So we'll be having a look at that, and I would like to hear what you think about these kind of received critical opinions when we come to our questions later on. I'll be asking you to think about them and see those of you who think that these critical tags that have been affixed to this concerto actually mean something and those of you who think that it's all irrelevant and that it's a beautiful piece and that it works perfectly well on its own terms. That'll be a chance for you to have your say later. But the one thing that everybody seems perfectly agreed about with this concerto is that the piano writing is superb. It really is vintage Chopin. Even at this remarkably early stage of his career, he's only just out of his teens. The piano writing is exciting, colourful, and it's absolutely full of those wonderful, memorable melodies and themes which are so typical of Chopin. You can hear that right from the piano's first entry near the beginning of the concerto. One thing I think is abundantly clear from that little extract is that Chopin really knows how to make the piano sing. That's something that people have said about his style over and over again. Well, he was partly inspired by the relatively new phenomenon of bel canto opera in his day, which was coming out of Italy, particularly at that time, and especially by the operas of Vincenzo Bellini. A bel canto simply means beautiful singing, and that's more or less what it was concentration above all on the voice and of the kind of acrobatics, but particularly the kind of beautiful melodies that the voice can perform. This idea of bel canto singing applied to the piano was something that was really being kind of worked on by other composers at the same time, composers that aren't so well known in some cases these days. Karl Maria von Weber or Johann Nepomuk Hummel. Friedrich Kalkbrenner, to whom Chopin dedicated this concerto as an act of homage, and the Irish composer John Field. At the same time, Chopin was responding more and more to the sound of the voice itself, and you can certainly hear that when you listen to singing melodies like this one. That's lovely, isn't it? Just for a moment there, you really do feel as though you're more in the opera house than in the concert hall listening to a concerto. It really does sound like an aria at that point. I'd like to bring in our pianist, our soloist, Piers Lane, at this point, because Piers, I mean, the piano sings beautifully on this thoroughly modern instrument that we have here. But um, you've played pianos from Chopin's own time, haven't you? And
0: there's, there's quite a difference, isn't there, in the way that they sound? That's true. The top tends to be rather on the thin side, The middle is not as thick as on the modern Steinway, too. Likewise, the bass, there's a clarity about them that we don't have now. I remember coming across an erard such as Chopin had in Morocco, of all places, and happened to be playing all of one set of Chopin's etudes on them. And, in fact, I found them a lot easier on that instrument than on a modern Steinway. Things like chromatic runs on the outer fingers and double-third studies and things like that. The texture was different, and the mechanism wasn't as, as difficult to to keep beautiful.
1: But there's some, one thing I certainly noticed, you mentioned about the, the deeper text as being very clear, that often these very rich um, accompaniments that he writes, they're often a lot clearer and more focused, aren't they, on the, on the old pianos than they are on the modern ones? That's modern. Right.
0: right. Yes, he was definitely writing for the instruments that he knew and loved. But one thing that the modern piano has
1: got, which is very good in Chopin, is this sustaining power. And that's not the same, is it, on an old era? No,
0: that's right. The sound tends to disappear, especially at the top. And Chopin, sure, well, he has his ways of compensating for this, doesn't he? You know, you don't come across melodies that are written up in that area of the piano because he doesn't expect that one would be able to ping that sound out beautifully the over a period of last. time. The, the that's right. Last, yeah. And so if he's going to write up there, he fills it out. There's a tiny example I can give you just from that melody rather than going... This takes his time to do that. In something like the slow movement later on, he goes... Right up to the top. Ooh. Decoration rather than trying to make it sing up there. So what sounds like pure
1: inspiration is often the result of practical necessity, basically.
0: <laughs> I'm sure they go hand in hand.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something else that, um, that that's rather striking. Just after that uh, that aria-like passage you played a moment or two ago, where the piano sings in the right hand, not just a sort of a sustained line on its own, but in octaves. Well, instead of... Um,
0: doubles it with the voice below, an octave down. Uh,
1: now that, that's quite hard to do, to make that really smooth legato, isn't it, with just just
0: one hand, is it? That's true. Yes, because you can't connect every single note. It's very hard to connect the thumb to another thumb. <laughs> yes. Do you know Claudio Rau, the great pianist, apparently used to practice scales, going from the end of his thumb to the mm. tip of his thumb mm. to try and get that uh, legato thumb, but it's terribly difficult. So you have to try to connect the outer voices. Luckily, I've got fairly large mitts, so I can reach octaves with one and three or one and two if absolutely necessary. And so have a bit of leeway. You can slide from connecting. finger to finger. That's
1: well, right. Can you show us how that works? It's when, when Chopin has this theme in octaves in the right hand. really envious of the way you played that so smoothly, that's <laughs> wonderful. But this is something that's quite new in piano style though, isn't it? I mean, you, you, Beethoven and Mozart don't do this kind of thing in their concertos,
0: do they? They don't. I mean, Beethoven, one thinks of the opening of the third concerto, and you hmm. get double octaves there. Yeah.
1: That's quite percussive, isn't it? That's, that's, that's quite beaten out. It's supposed to be aggressive like that, or certainly quite that's true. percussive. Um, and he doesn't
0: want that smooth effect that Chopin gets to. On the other hand, Hummel, who was one of the people you mentioned mm. just before... Does have that sort of thing in his writing, and I think um, if one looks at the A minor and B minor concertos by Hummel, very fine pieces. They're fine pieces, and there's so much that Chopin has obviously absorbed from them, either subconsciously or deliberately. And it's interesting that the the second movement of his B minor concerto, which is also marked larghetto like the the Chopin, starts in melodic octaves. I'll just play a little bit of that. goes on in a similar vein, and it does sound very Chopin-esque, doesn't it, albeit a little simpler?
1: A little simpler, and it doesn't have that wonderful sort of effortless grace that some of Chopin's melodies have, does it? I mean, it's a very appealing little tune, but, but much simpler, as you say. Now, there are other ways in which Chopin can enhance the melodic line and give it support in ways that perhaps grow out of practical necessity, but certainly enhance the experience for us and make the music more delicious and sensuously beautiful there are some particularly striking examples of this in the central movement the romancer one thing that you can do for instance is to play a theme in other kinds of parallel intervals narrower intervals that shift around the piano much more easily chopin does this with thirds for instance and with six perhaps you could just demonstrate a third for us and a sixth that the piano appears then we can hear what they they sound like this is a third first And the sixth. So here's a passage from the slow movement where Chopin enhances the melody by having it played in these parallel intervals like this. quite careful not to have the melody doubled at the same interval all the way through that passage otherwise it would just become rather mechanical and boring um, he can even play around with the kind of intervals he uses a lot can't he Piers there's one passage we we're both struck by in the slow movement where it keeps moving between thirds and sixths and back again so that it, it's as though you're listening to the sound of a singer's voice changing as it moves from register
0: to register. Yes perhaps I'll just show you what it would sound like without the third mm. with the various intervals.
1: Yes, it's incomparably richer, isn't it, than if you just play the line on its own. And what sounds like a beautiful melody in its own right actually isn't that beautiful if you isolate it and take Chopin's colour away. That's, that's, that's really very remarkable there. Let's hear that passage with, with the orchestral accompaniment so you can hear how Chopin uses these intervals. Not all the way through. Sometimes he changes the colour, just as, it, as, you, as you might expect a voice changes colour as it moves about the register. Yes, that's unmistakably Chopin, isn't it, even at the age of 20. Very, very close there to the dreamy, voluptuous world of the nocturnes or the more lyrical etudes and preludes. In fact, I nearly describe that as impressionistic, because at times Chopin really can seem to look forward to 20th-century masters like Debussy this is an interesting way he has sometimes of looking at harmony. His harmony can be extremely expressive. It's not just melody and tonal beauty in Chopin. But one thing that's very striking about the harmonic thinking of a lot of composers in Chopin's time is it's dominated by a particularly Germanic attitude. Basically, you understand a harmony in terms of where it's coming from and where it's going to. It makes sense once you understand its context. But Chopin is one of these composers who, much like Debussy later on, sometimes likes taking a chord out and just loving it for its own sake, doesn't he, Piers? He, he he really just plays around with the sound of a chord, just as a sound. It doesn't matter what its function is, it doesn't matter where it's going to or what it, it comes from. Could you, could you give us an example? I mean, there's one, there's one passage that's particularly lovely in this respect in the slimmer where there's one chord like this. And he just plays a string of them together like a string of pearls. That really is very close to Debussy indeed, that kind of just playing with that that sound for its own sake. But there's not just this kind of impressionistic beauty, this gentle lyricism that's typical of one side of Chopin. There's also the brilliant side of Chopin's piano writing, the virtuosic, dazzling style. In fact, there was a fashion at the time amongst composers and pianists for what was called the stile brillante, the brilliant style. And Chopin does know how to dazzle, and certainly he does so in this early work. It was clearly written to make a powerful, brilliant impression in the concert hall. And um, he particularly uses this sort of brilliant virtuosic demonstration as he's building towards climaxes at key points in the concerto, like the culmination of a long solo, the end, for instance, Of the piano's contribution in the first movement is a particularly good example of this mounting brilliance and then finally building over just at the point where the piano hands over to the orchestra. There's a culmination in these brilliant, flashing trills. Now, Piers, would you mind just briefly anatomizing that final tr- trill for us for a moment? Because it's not just a simple trill, the kind that Mozart often uses, the, the handover point to the orchestra. It's a really sort of multiple trill built up on many layers, isn't it? That's true. starts off with a Mozart
0: sort of one in the middle, but then adds tenths in the left hand, adds a bass, and then puts a tremolo over the outside. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: Has that got any easier since Chopin's Day, or is that still pretty, pretty um, tough?
0: It's not too bad. I mean, Brahms took it further, not, you know, not, with those... Not too bad,
1: he says.
0: You get those sort of things in Brahms. Octave yes. trills mm. of terribly wide span mm. for trilling on. <laughs> oh, yes. But, Yes, I, I don't know that trills have gone further than that. You know, so much Chopin is at the acme of technique. When you look at his études, where he takes one little problem and then explores that problem for an entire piece and never gives up, they're still fiendishly difficult. If you can play all the Chopin études, you can play pretty well anything. You know, things like the chromatic one with the chromatic on the outside of the hand and something else happening on the inside of the hand and then double thirds, all that stuff, it's very difficult.
1: Do you get the impression sometimes that he actually enjoys going for the burn? That There's even an element of physical
0: pain almost <laughs> in there sometimes, the things he asks you I to don't do. No, do He himself apparently kept terribly still at the piano, and he made a very small, though infinitely beautiful sound apparently. Mm. People complain, I think it was when he first played this concerto, orchestra members said that they couldn't hear him, he didn't project enough, and mm. certainly when he toured England late in his life, people complained that he couldn't be heard in the hall. He played so softly. He but, didn't like big
1: concert halls, did he? Eventually, he, he, he preferred didn't. salons. Didn't That's he? right. He preferred he an did. intimate environment.
0: And his main criticism of other pianists was that they made the piano bark like dogs. He, he mm. had very fine ears.
1: It's interesting what you say as well about the fact that he didn't move very much, because if you think about a 20th century giant of the piano, Rachmaninoff, who you hear his recordings, there's a fabulously powerful sound. And Stravinsky said that he was like looking at a block of wood. He called him six and a half feet of scowl, I think <laughs> was the description. Right. <laughs> Uh, Just goes to show you don't have to throw yourself all over the place to to make these wonderful sounds. But anyway, we'll just have one other aspect of this concerto I would like to have a look at before we move on to the complete performance. And that's the oft-referred-to national element in Chopin, because he was born in Poland, although his was of half French parentage, and he's become something of a national icon in Poland. In fact, that's putting it mildly. This nationalistic element developed certainly more powerfully in Chopin's later work, but you can see elements of it here in this concerto. There's a little dance tune, for instance, at the beginning of the third movement, the finale, which is called a Krakowiak, which means a dance from the Krakow region. What happens is that Chopin throws the stress onto the second beat of the bar. But at the same time, there's a kind of teasing element. You can't quite tell at the beginning whether it's in three beats in a bar or in two. It's not clear until the end. I certainly hear the folk dance element behind that, and that very characteristic spring on the first beat there a nice little touch of local colour, though in a way in this concerto that's all it is. If you like, Chopin's really intense creative engagement with Polish music developed after he left Poland, for good as it turned out, in 1831, the year after he wrote this concerto. And that's interesting because that is true of quite a few prominent nationalistic artists. Uh, They often have to leave their home country to get away from it, to be able to think clearly about it. I don't know how many of you have ever read uh, James Joyce's marvellous novel portrait of the artist as a young man. But it ends with the hero, like Joyce, leaving Ireland virtually for good, in order, as he puts it, I go to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race, Uh, which in a way is exactly what Joyce did, because in many ways he has contributed very much to the modern consciousness in Ireland, and yet he did it largely from abroad. And so did Chopin, mostly in Paris, where he found convivial Polish company, but he also seems to have found the state of being in exile stimulating too. So there's only a little touch of Polish flavoring in this as yet Polish work that Chopin wrote on his own home soil, the first concerto. The second theme of the finale also has a kind of Polish inflection. There's a little sprung rhythm in the strings, one of the few points in this concerto in which the orchestra make a contribution, as it were, that the piano can't provide. And then there's a falling melody, and the way the melody falls, the phrases fall, perhaps a hint of what's sometimes generally referred to as Slavic melancholy. Thank you. Well, I wonder if Chopin would have guessed at this stage that he would become a kind of cultural hero in his own home country and time, and just how important he would be to so many Poles the world over, today as much as ever. I remember a few years ago being in a Polish club in Manchester, and there were a lot of old Polish airmen, ex-RAF men, sitting at the bar, happily talking and drinking, and there was a pianist playing in the background, playing all sorts of numbers, Gershwin show tunes and things. And then he played the E Major Etude by Chopin, and there was an air of religious silence. Nobody spoke. This was important. This was the music of the homeland. Meanwhile, I have another impression which is rather different. I spent some time in Poland in the mid-80s. and I remember seeing news programs on Polish television, and one thing that was very funny in a grim kind of way, is that whenever they showed images of the Central Committee of the Communist Party passing some historic resolution on something like the collectivization of agriculture or what to do with the drains in Warsaw, which is an abiding problem, that they would play in the background the slow movement of this concerto, as though to indicate that this is an image of Elysium, this is heaven, this was something wonderful. And you see these ball necked old convict looking like gentlemen in suits, Associated with this music, it was really quite difficult to believe. Meanwhile, I remember that whenever they showed pictures of Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan, they played the scherzo of Shostakovich's 10th symphony. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. Oddly enough, this propagandising doesn't seem to have worked on the polls that I met, but there you are. Well, back to the first piano concerto. We'll hear the complete work in just a moment, and then I'd like to bring you in with hear what you make of this piece, and particularly in the light of these criticisms that I mentioned earlier on that people have made over and over again about this concerto. One thing you may have noticed is that all the extracts we've heard so far... Either they're just peers alone on the piano, or the orchestra is in a kind of supporting role, acting almost like a kind of amplified or color-enhanced sustaining pedal, creating sound around the orchestra. There are passages for the orchestra alone in in this concerto, like the orchestral prelude at the very beginning of the concerto, but there aren't that many. And I suppose in the 19th century, the conventional way of looking at the concerto, particularly based on the examples of Mozart and Beethoven, was that there should be a kind of dramatic interplay between the soloist and the orchestra. That's what it's all about. It's also true in Baroque concertos, if you think about it. The soloist and the orchestral band tend to alternate very strikingly so that you're sometimes hearing one, sometimes hearing the other, and there's an interplay between the two going on. That really doesn't happen to anything like the same extent in the Chopin, as you'll hear in a moment. But the question I have for you is, does that matter? Should Chopin be rebuked for not having written a concerto that does what concertos are supposed to do? Or has he, in fact, created another kind of concerto, a concerto that's more like an operatic Sena, where the orchestra, as it were, prepares the atmosphere at the beginning, and then it's over to the soloist? Does it work in its own terms? Does it convince you? Or do you think that maybe he should have written something closer to those archetypes provided by Mozart and Beethoven? That's one thing I'd really like to hear from you. The other is a slightly more technical one, and this is for those of you with ears uh, for keys, who like key spotting. And this is something else that various people have rapped Chopin over the knuckles for. You'll notice that it's not till halfway through the first movement, which is quite a long movement, about 20 minutes, that Chopin leaves the key of E. It's all in either E minor or E major. Well, again, this is not what well-behaved concertos are supposed to do. They're supposed to be dramatic modulations, and it's supposed to be the soloist who leads them, instead of which he seems to be giving us a kind of a string, a medley of tunes. Well, again, the question I have for you is, does it matter? Coming to this concerto with, I hope, unprejudiced ears, do you think Chopin should have introduced a few modulations to make it more like Beethoven, or do you think it just works on its own terms? That's the kind of question I'd really like to hear answered by you. I have my own feelings, but I'll keep them for the moment. Anyway, now it's time to hear a complete performance of Chopin's Piano Concerto No. 1, this remarkable achievement for a 20 year old. It's performed for us now by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, leader Leslie Hatfield, conducted by Kenneth Woods, and our soloist, Piers Lane.